0: I had an authentic connection to the problem. I knew what the market opportunity would be. I had a perspective on cultural connection. And I recognized that the only reason they weren't doing it is because they were lazy. All they had to do was get on the phone with 10 Black folks they knew, and eight of them would have said that this is a crazy problem. Get on the phone with 10 non-Black folks, and three or four of them would have said the same thing. I was getting no's before folks had a willingness to do that. It wasn't powering through rejection. It was neglecting it because I just knew something that they didn't. And that required continued persistence. So it wasn't that I was powering through rejection. It was that I was neglecting their laziness and knew that I needed to find people who weren't as lazy.
1: Great companies are all about the people. Good people become great leaders, mentors for work and life. Welcome to Learnings from Leaders, the PG Alumni Podcast. I'm Andrew Tarvin, humor engineer. And I'm Roman Segel, recovering marketer. Andrew and I both got our start at PNG, the Procter Gamble company, where we both had the opportunity to work with some amazing people. And as you may know, many leaders across industries got their start at PG. In this series, through conversations with fellow PG alums, we have to go deeper with the leaders you already know but want to know more about, how they got their start how they make it work, and what keeps them going. It's kind of like bringing a microphone to a cup of coffee, or in my case, hot chocolate. On today's show, we're talking to Tristan Walker, founder of Walker & Company, which was acquired by P&G in 2018. Wait a minute, that doesn't make him a P&G alumni.
2: <laughs> <laughs> hey, Roman, How's it going?
1: Oh, hey, it's Dorian Positano, who's P&G's Director of New Business and Content Innovation, who also hosts P&G's internal podcast, More Than Soap, which is available to all 100,000 P&G employees worldwide. Great to have you on Learnings from Leaders, Dorian. So. Tell me more about this podcast that you're the host of.
2: Yeah. So as you mentioned, our podcast is called More Than Soap because, look, we've all heard it before. I mean, a PG or some variation of this at any company in the midst of a particularly stressful team meeting, someone will invariably scoff and say, ah, relax. We're not curing cancer here. We're just selling soap. You know?
1: <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I've totally done that more than a few times over the years.
2: Yeah. And, you know, I've heard it and I'll admit, I also may have even said it at some point during my 10 year career at P&G. But I've also heard people say that we do much more than make and sell packaged goods. You know, that P&G is much more than just a soap company. And the possibilities of what we can do to build our business and impact the world are endless, but we walk around with blinders on, and we don't even know we're wearing them most of the time, or we do it under the guise of efficiency and productivity.
1: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that's always been key to the success of Micro, P&G, and beyond was the importance of trying to be externally focused as well, because we don't always have all the answers on the inside.
2: You're so right. And so on the podcast, what we do is we sit down with guests like journalist and author Malcolm Gladwell a brain scientist an oscar winning actor and we rip those blinders off and we talk to the guests to learn about what they would see if they were in our shoes and then after every conversation we also sit down with a png leader to unpack the insights and apply them to our world at P&G.
1: Yeah, your guest list is quite impressive. So let's talk about today's episode, your conversation with Walker & Company founder and CEO, Tristan Walker.
2: Yeah, well, recently I had the chance to sit down with Tristan to talk about his entrepreneurial journey, launching the Bevel brand and founding Walker & Company, which was ultimately built to meet a long unmet consumer need he saw in the market. Kristen is the founder and CEO of Walker & Company Brands, and also serves on the Footlocker, Shake Shack, and Children's Healthcare of Atlanta Board of Directors. Fortune Magazine named him as one of 50 of the world's greatest leaders. In 2018, Walker & Co. was acquired by P&G, and his flagship brand, Bevel, is a category leader with distribution in Target and Walmart stores across the nation. Prior to founding Walker & Company, he was an entrepreneur in residence at Andreessen Horowitz. And prior to that, he was the director of business development for Foursquare, where he oversaw strategic partnerships and monetization. Tristan currently lives with his wife, Amoy, and two sons, Avery and August, in Atlanta, Georgia.
1: And I'm just so excited to share this episode with our audience it's a really great one. There's several that will feature, but I would be remiss if I didn't mention for the benefit of all the PNG employees who we know are listening to our PNG Alumni podcast. Those of you who have not yet subscribed to More Than Soap, you gotta check it out because you'll have exclusive access to not just the entire catalog of amazing conversations that Dorian and his entire team have each week, but you'll also get access to post interview conversations with PNG leaders like Shailash, Fama, Sundar, and many of PNG's executive team.
2: That's right, Raman. Any PNG employee around the world can just go to getmorethansoap.com to hear any of our exclusive content, which you can listen to right on your favorite podcasting app. And, you know, it's worth mentioning that for P&G employees every other week, we also sit down with Shane Meeker, our P&G historian, to talk about some of P&G's most fascinating stories. And they really are fascinating.
1: That is so awesome. I'm super jealous of all our friends still at p g who get to hear this every week. So, look, I know we're looking forward to lots of future podcasting partnerships with More Than Soap on this show. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the More Than Soap conversation with Tristan Walker.
0: Yes, Crest really works. Really works. It's
2: me. It's me. Don't tweet the charm. More
0: doctors
2: advise ivory for the skin than any other soap. Tristan, welcome to the More Than So podcast.
0: Thanks for having me.
2: Good to have you here. So let's dive right in. So P&G acquired Walker & Company a few years ago, your company. So why don't we start with you telling us a bit about the origin story?
0: Yeah, uh, Walker Company was founded in 2013, really with the express aim to make healthy beauty simple for people. I felt that there was a dearth of products in the market that served our unique needs, mm-hmm. that respected our cultural influence, that respected our purchasing power, and that respected the way that we believe that brands should show up in the world. Yeah. So Walker & Company was really built with the express intention um, to be the defining brand that answers all those questions in support of the community. Yeah. And, and Bevel was our first brand. Walker & Company slated to build a family of brands. Bevel is the first brand that we created and the one that we're most well known for with the goal to build the first and only end-to-end shaving system that helps uh, eliminate razor bumps and irritation for black men. Yeah. And that really was the start of something pretty special. Now we have not only worked uh, with our Bevel difference to solve issues related to shaving for black men, but also skincare, mm-hmm. body care, and
1: hair care.
2: I've heard you say, Tristan, before that you felt disrespected. And that led to the motivation to launch Walker & Company. Yeah. So talk to us about why you felt disrespected and how you approached that and
0: what you did about it. Yeah. So first it starts with uh, not feeling I had products that worked for me and my unique needs, <laughs> right? Yeah. For 15 years, I didn't shave because of this fear that I had of, of putting razors on my face. That wasn't until I founded Bevel. One part of disrespect starts with product efficacy. And the other is in the retail experience. Yeah. I would go to retail shops, having to shop down an ethnic beauty aisle, which I, I never understood it's being next to the beauty aisle, right. right? why that bifurcation was required, never made much sense to me. And then always having to find again, products that don't work, but also that were marketed to me in disrespectful ways. Mm. Black men show up differently, for example, and the types of packaging design, the types of tones of voice, that resonate with me were markedly different from the ones that i was seeing marketed to us mm. and that level of disrespect i'd imagine it, it wasn't one thing that i only felt lots and lots and lots of black consumers felt the same way so i felt that there's a wide open opportunity to do it a little bit differently leveraging online direct-to-consumer opportunities to communicate differently uh, with this consumer and the rest is history
2: got it and It's clear to me that you were contending with this problem for a number of years. I mean, I've heard you talk about how you used, you know, a Nair type product on your face as the the best solution available to you for a while.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, depilatory creams.
2: (laughs) I mean, talk to us about that. And I'm curious, after all those years, was there a Eureka moment that led to the core product that you launched the business with? 100%.
0: um, For 15 years, I used a depilatory cream on my face. These are creams that you let sit on your face for six to eight minutes, and then you just wipe it off. You don't have to use razors or anything like that. And look, it it worked decently well. I didn't have to deal with razor pumps or anything of the sort, but they're deeply heavy chemical-based products that burn my skin, Mm. discolored my skin. And one thing I I always talk about as it relates to those products, I remember one day reading uh, the caution statement on the back which said not to use it two days in a row. Wow, (laughs) That's crazy to me. (laughs) The fact that we're relegated to our having to use those types of products for our skin. Mm. Now, more power to those companies that recognize that gap and offer it, albeit some semblance of a solution, but I felt that we can do better. You know, I remember this was late 2012, early January of 2013, when I had that Eureka moment, I was actually sitting as an entrepreneur in residence at one of the best venture capital firms in Silicon Valley, thinking of the idea that I wanted to start. And I remember on, on my way home one day, going into the art of shaving, <laughs> funny enough, mm. and I told the sales rep at the time, the issues that I had, pretending to raise them up, that sort of thing. And I, I also remember doing this in different cities, right? Just to gauge the answer to the question that I posed, which was which product should I use? Mm. <laughs> and in every city that I went to that hired an art of shaving that was easily accessible, each of them directed me to use a safety razor. Hmm. And I remember buying it. This is from the Palo Alto store in California. I used it. This is the first time I had to use a razor in 15 years. Hmm. I woke up the following morning and my face didn't break out. Wow! It was a breakthrough moment for me. Like the clouds open, <laughs> the heavens light shine down <laughs> on earth. And, and I realized something. I said, wow, it, I, I remember it being such a transformational moment for me wow. in the same way that you know, I bought that first iPhone and used that slide to unlock. You, you knew that there was something here. Right. That safety razor was similar for me. I knew it was going to change my lifestyle. Yeah. And I felt that was a moment of opportunity. I, I wasn't looking to start a CPG company at all. Mm. I was looking to solve my problem. And I remember recommending it to a friend of mine in Palo Alto to use. And I remember his being terrified, (laughs) right? And I convinced him to use it. He woke up the following morning, didn't break out. And at that moment I knew I had something.
2: Yeah. If you had a great idea at P and G or a big corporation, would you keep pitching it and pitching it and pitching it if someone above you shut it down or would you just stop? And, And how do we apply your lesson of powering through that rejection? And just believing in the idea and running with it until you can make it happen. How do we apply that to our world at p
0: I think that there's a slight nuance in it. It's not that I just power through rejection. Yeah, There are things that I get rejected for that I probably shouldn't be doing. And I just move on to the, to the next thing. I think the thing with this idea is that I had an insight that the folks that were potentially going to fund it were too lazy to recognize what was in front of them. Yeah, I had an authentic connection to the problem. I knew what the market opportunity would be. I had a perspective on cultural connection. I had a pedigree. I'd already been a part of companies that I had delivered on, right. <laughs> and it was a blue ocean opportunity. If I'm an investor, check, 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 Right, <laughs> go do it, right? And I, and I recognized that the only reason they weren't doing it is because they were lazy. Mm. All they had to do was get on the phone with 10 black folks they knew, and eight of them would have said that this is a crazy problem. Get on the phone with 10 non-black folks, and three or four of them would have said the same thing. I was getting no's before folks had a willingness to do that. And as a result, it wasn't powering through rejection. It was neglecting it (laughs) because I knew that I just knew something that they didn't. And that required continued persistence, right? Right. Usually when when folks ask that question, it's almost framed like there was something wrong with the idea as opposed to the people who were evaluating it. (laughs) I think we need to reframe it a little bit. I think if folks are not lazy, they can objectively assess. And I felt that folks weren't objectively assessing. So again, it wasn't that I was powering through rejection. It was that I was neglecting their laziness right. and knew that I needed to find people who weren't as lazy. So the question was, how can folks at P&G power through it? Number one, it's not just about the data. You can probably find a problem solution opportunity in personal care for anybody just based on the data that's out there, Nielsen data, anything. (laughs) But the thing that I find that helps convince folks is when you have that authentic empathy to the situation. And look, if you believe something, if you feel uniquely positioned to have that point of view, as I did for Bevel, right, for all the reasons that I suggested, and there's an authentic empathetic connection to that problem, and it's still not being heard, and there's a wide open market opportunity, and you have a mandate, because this is important, you have a mandate to find innovation. Yeah. If that's not being heard, then maybe you're in the wrong opportunity. Right. And I mean that quite genuinely. Yeah. Now, you might not have the mandate to do that, which is a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but if that's your purpose, and you've done all the work, and there's still a laziness of understanding, then I think you really need to just question the situation that you're in.
2: Right. Yeah, and I've heard you use that word before lazy and i commend you for using it and being so direct regarding your perception of at times the cpg industry the retail industry the private equity industry Mm -hmm. it's funny i I look around p and g and lazy isn't a word that comes to mind i think about my colleagues so i'm trying to figure out what is it that we need to do differently to make sure that on our other businesses we're focused on the right things and doing the work that sheds light on opportunities that we might be missing?
0: I'm not sure P&G is not doing that. Mm. From what I've observed, I think P&G moves fast. Look, I'll, I'll say this. Let's say I weren't at P&G. Let's say this is years out or something like that. I would not start a CPG company. I personally would not do it. Yeah. The reason I would not do it is because I see on the other side mm how mobile and agile P&G is. And I think the future of CPG, honestly, is going to come from folks like Mm -hmm. (laughs) P&G, right? Who have learned to be agile and build these new brands. When I see Alex's insight, instinct, intuition, allocation of resources to new initiatives that have an eye towards the future, sequencing and cadencing them out, I think P&G is doing a lot of the stuff that you're asking. I can't speak for other large CPG companies, but given the enterprise compliance risk (laughs) trade-off, I think P&G is excellent
2: at it. That's good to hear. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: I mean, if we're we're talking like multicultural and reaching this new consumer or emerging consumer that P&G doesn't have, I think really the true only fix there, if there's any, is to have more people reflective of the consumers that you want to serve. Right. right? I don't think that there's any other way. There's no other way. Yeah. Right? There's no skirting around it. And I think that's brass tacks recruiting, retention, that sort of thing.
2: So talk to us about Code 2040 and what you're doing to drive more of that.
0: Yeah, so Code 2040 is a triumph, I like to say. I started Code 2040 about a year before I founded Walker & Company. And the goal of Code 2040 was to ensure that young undergraduate students didn't make the same mistake I did. And that was realizing that Silicon Valley existed by the time I was 24. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know about Silicon Valley until I landed down to go to Stanford Business School, and my worldview changed. Imagine had I known about that when I was in high school or college, maybe I would have taken computer science, Mm -hmm. right? My entire career path perhaps would have been differently. And if if we're going to participate in this new innovation economy, I felt folks who looked like me needed to have seats at the table. I read a, a book in 2011, 2012, called Race Against the Machine, written by an MIT professor, and the idea is there's this gap between the rich and the poor that we're all familiar with, that gap is widening. There is no middle class. I believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. And the reason that gap exists because folks at the top, the 1%, quote unquote, are leveraging technology in ways to make them more productive. So they don't need folks that are at the bottom, quote unquote. And I think the most efficient way to rise, tide, lift all boats yeah. <laughs> is to have folks on the other side of that gap leverage tools of technology to make them a hell of a lot more productive. Mm. I think what we're going through right now is one of the most interesting, inspiring opportunities for wealth creation, for folks who look like me. And yeah, I want to provide that path. So at Code2040, we're most well known for our fellows program, how we started, where we would find the highest performing black Latinx engineering undergraduates around the country and provide them with Silicon Valley internships and the tools they need to be successful. Media training, fireside one-on-one chats with tech luminaries, interview bias training. I mean, as a result, I mean, we've graduated some 600 fellows through the program. We have a 90 plus percent full-time offer rate, hmm. which is higher than Silicon Valley standard offer rate. And I think it is a true triumph. And these kids are grownups now in a lot of ways, are in industry, hiring folks who look like them and or starting companies that have raised money. And I'm, I'm proud that it still goes on still to this day.
2: That's awesome. That's such a great, such a great story and and such an inspiring vision that you have. Uh, So thanks for sharing that. I'm sure people would want to hear more about your background too. And why don't we start with you offering, I heard you talk about this, the best advice you you ever received was, and I don't want to butcher this, but something about how you're greatest challenges led to some of your greatest opportunities. Oh. So talk to us about that. Talk to us about your background and sort of what led to you doing what you do.
0: The best advice I ever got was from Tyler Perry, actually. Yeah. Well before I started Walker Company. I think this was back in 2012 or something like that. I got to interview him one-on-one in three different cities. MX had done this thing for small businesses and they wanted me to moderate a panel with him in these three different cities. is Atlanta, Chicago, L.A. And I remember we were in L.A. And at the Q&A session, there was a woman, small business owner, raised her hand. She said, Mr. Perry, you go through all these trials and tribulations. What do you do to get back up? And what he said next fundamentally changed my life. And here's a guy who, billionaire now, like one of the most successful folks in media. He lived in his car, like homeless like, for a while. And so he looked at her and he said, I recognized my breakthrough as an entrepreneur when I understood that the trials you go through and the blessings you receive are the exact same things. Hmm. That completely changed my life his opinion was those trials are lessons. Those lessons are blessings and you have to embrace those things. That's a life well lived. I mean, there's no beaten path to glory's height, right? Man. You have to cut through the bush and you have to get you know, cut and scraped, yeah. but there is glory at the end of that. And as I think about entrepreneurship and founding companies and scaling them, it's a miserable existence. Yeah. <laughs> like it's not, it's not fun. It's not glamorous. It's not sexy. But it's the most rewarding thing I've ever done. And I can't see myself doing anything else. Right. So, having that perspective has completely changed my outlook on the world. And it's really reflective of the background that I have. I'm a kid from Queens, grew up in the projects, welfare, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the good fortune for high school to go to one of the top boarding schools in the country, the Bahasya School, on a full scholarship. And that changed my worldview. I got to see how the other half lived. I went to school with Rockefellers and Fords and that sort of thing. And I thrived. Mm -hmm. And that was an example of like, up until that point, tons of trials emerged a blessing. And really the rest is history. And look, life ebbs and flows. You sometimes come into a good season and that ends. Sometimes you come into a bad season and that ends. And sometimes you come into a good season and that ends. The thing that I learned in that advice that I'm continuing to learn today is that season's end. (laughs) you know? And I can't guess how long they'll last, but I know they'll end. And that's a blessing. I've
2: also heard you say before, Tristan, that one of the things that motivated you to get through some of those trials and what you were striving for, at least at one point in your life, I don't know if this is still true, get as wealthy as you can as quickly as possible. You've seen a pretty wide spectrum and experienced a pretty wide spectrum of wealth what insights would you offer from that experience and what motivates you today that that might be different than maybe 10 or 15 years ago?
0: Yeah, I'd say I haven't experienced it at all, honestly. Like I am certainly more well off than I was 10, 15 years ago, but I haven't achieved what I set out to. Mm. Like it all, it all starts with what the goal is. My goal is freedom. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean? To me, freedom is not owing anybody anything, right? There are multiple ways that you can think that through. And financial capital and wealth helps strengthen and tighten that definition for me. But I also do recognize, and it's ebbed and flowed for me, how much do I feel I need? That number has come down yeah, <laughs> fairly significantly from 10, 15 years ago, because I am fulfilled in other ways. Yeah. I am living in line with my values. I think about them every hour of the day. <laughs> and I'm not quite perfect yet, but I have a desire to be where I, I am making decisions in line with my values. Our people are making decisions in line with our values. I am participating with companies and brands and opportunities that are in line with my values. If I've done that, that is a life well lived. Yeah. And if I can experience, as you say, wealth in the way that I define it in line with that goal towards freedom, and that's a hell of a life we'll live.
2: Love that. I think that redefinition of wealth and what drives purpose for you is helpful to hear. Totally. And I congratulate you for being on that journey and getting a lot of the way there. I mean, you, you, you got to give yourself a bit more credit. I think you're you're pretty far along that path.
0: I have made progress. My sons go to wonderful schools. I live in a wonderful home. I am not living in wants. And I am better off than 99% of the world, right? Like I have that perspective and view and I'm thankful for it, but it's okay to have goals too. Does that make sense? Yeah. It's not binary for me. I think it's enhancing. Yeah.
2: We've talked a lot about the demographic shift and the importance of paying close attention to that and evolving with it. We've talked about brands that can be forced for good. Talk to me a little bit more about what you're doing in the area of tech. To keep up with what's going on there for the benefit of Bevel and and the brands in your portfolio.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, when we first started the brand, we leveraged tech to do things that didn't scale, funny enough. Look, I mean, one insight that we had, and we just felt it ourselves, is that this is a fear of shaving, right? right? Uh, From a lot of folks within the audience. So when we started, I I have to ask the team if we still do as much as this now, but I think I know it's beneficial when we first started. We would do video chats from our customer service team to our consumers to walk them through like how to shave at the 30 degree angle, wow. how to install the blade, stuff like that. Now, of course we didn't get like a whole bunch of outreach for that, but we had it made it available yeah. and people appreciated that availability. Right. So tech, when I think about tech, it doesn't have to be hardcore artificial intelligence, blah, 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 although that's helpful and makes things more efficient. It can be just leveraging tech to show empathy. Yeah. And I think that there are unique ways and insights that allow us to do it. Yeah, A lot of folks think about tech as this like almost separate thing, but tech is table stakes. Mm. So when I when I talk about tech in my three theme definition, I map it back to this cultural connection thing. Yeah. How do we provide them with the tools they need to spread their cultural influence? And look, I don't know what that answer is now for the next five, 10 years for Bevel but we're leveraging that framework to think about it. (laughs) How do we get people to share the magic of our product? Right.
2: The example you gave, I think, is a really interesting one because I've heard you talk about with pride, the fact that at least in the early stages of building your business, you did a lot of things that didn't or wouldn't scale, Mm -hmm. but you have to wonder for that example that you offered of getting on video calls with your consumers to offer tutorials, How many people did that relative to the number of people that heard about it and appreciated the fact that they could do it? Way
0: more, way more heard and appreciated. Right,
2: And and so, yeah, I think that's a really neat way to look at it because you're right. We often do assess tactics and initiatives through the lens of what will scale and what can we scale most quickly, but it's a different way to think about scaling. You scaled... Word of mouth, I guess you could say.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's 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 scaled empathy. Yeah, more important mm. that availability shows empathy. Making space to show up shows empathy. And again, the technology just hides in the background in everything that we do. Yeah. But in order to scale that communication and empathy, it has to exist. So when this happens, it's hard to say or point things out. Like that's a pretty unique and special use case. But most of what we do is technology day-to-day. Yeah. Like We have a great retail business, but we continue to try to improve the consumer experience with our website and ways we communicate with them and engage with them, even off property to social media and that sort of thing. It allows us to meet people where they are.
2: You mentioned your retail business. How has the direct-to-consumer versus retail business evolved through the you know acquisition and recent growth of the company?
0: I mean, it's always evolving. I mean, fortunately now we have customer teams to help support us and make sure we're doing the right things. We didn't have that before. Mm -hmm. We went from, when we started the business, obviously 100% e-commerce, now 50-ish percent, if you include D2C and Amazon, right? So retail is actually a growing share, but .com obviously is the most scalable opportunity for us to reach people who aren't in the aisle. Um, So it's been an interesting balance of like managing in an omni-channel way while trying to be as precise as possible in our engagement for our kind of dot com customers, for example. But PNG has been an accelerant to our retail ambition. Right.
2: Tristan, I n- I know we don't have too much time left, but there were two more questions I had for you. Before I get there though, was there anything else that you wanted to touch on or, or say to the listeners that you think might be helpful or relevant for this audience?
0: I think a couple of things, just recognize that P&G is doing the right stuff. And I I can speak for P&G Beauty because that's where I have the most of the access. What I observe is pretty special and interesting. And sometimes it's easy to look and say, hey, we're in a big company. How are we doing? Mm -hmm. And I could say definitively that it's an exciting time for P&G Beauty. I, I would also say that it's important just personally to check in on your own personal values and are you doing the things that are in line with it? Even for some of the questions you asked a little earlier, how do you get your idea to be executed? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You got to think about what you believe and why you believe it and how it'll actually show up. And if there's an authentic, empathetic connection to it, it's my hope that those ideas will start to resonate, right? Because we need more of that for sure. I guess to sum it all up, be yourself and hire more people and retain more people that have an excitement to be themselves. Yeah. And I think that that has direct impact on diversity of workforce, motivation of workforce, innovation, right? right? Because people will offer more empathetic innovation ideas because they are themselves and there are a lot of people who are like them. And I think an aggressive focus on checking in on our people and checking in with yourself if you're a pnger and like are you being yourself and are we providing space for people to be themselves is something that has worked for me. And I would love to see how that actually can work at scale.
2: Love that. Well, Tristan, I'm going to just ask you one more question because I heard your alarm go off in the background. I guess that means that you have to run to one of your many important (laughs) meetings for the day. But let me ask you, what have you learned through the pandemic that you're going to take with you into the next 12 months as you lead your organization through a new, I'll call it new new Normal.
0: This is an easy question for me, because I thought about this actively, and it's not something I'm going to take for the next 12 months. This is literally for the rest of my life. I mean, COVID has forced me to expand my capacity for empathy in ways that I would have never expected. Yeah. Now, remember, and this defaults back to the makeup of our company, majority people of color, many of whom were d- disproportionately impacted by the pandemic. And remember last year, last summer, George Floyd, etc. this is stuff that like we internalize ourselves because we're part of the community that is suffering. Yeah. and just strip that away for a little bit. You go home, you have to deal with other things that have nothing to do with work. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to recognize in my seat that I had to make space for people to do what they needed to do. And for some, that means making space to take walks in the middle of the day, right? Or go to the gym or, or support their kids for the Zoom schooling, for example. Yeah. And I think our work from home has forced each of us to come through empathetically for each other. But especially for me, because I have to see the forest from the trees in a yeah, lot of ways. Yeah. Sometimes I had to give folks space to just take their time. What's interesting, everything I think is going to change post COVID. How we show up to work, if we show up into physical space, that sort of thing. And we're managing some of that stuff right now. But empathy will be the highest priority for us. Yeah. And the thing that is really interesting about that is I I believe we always felt that we were empathizing with consumers, right? Because we were reflective of it. Imagine a more empathetic workforce that is empathizing for a more empathetic consumer. Mm. And that to me is as exciting an opportunity to build as any that I've ever
1: experienced.
2: Well, Tristan, it's been inspirational to hear your story again, to hear what you're up to and to hear your vision for the future and, and what we could be doing more of. and. I like your description of, of where we ought to go, using empathy as the the North Star, so to speak. Yeah. And uh, so thank you for sharing. Thank you for teaching us at P&G and for becoming a part of the P&G family. And, and thanks for joining the More Than So podcast. It's been a pleasure talking to you.
0: Thank you, same. And it's it's been nothing short of a pleasure to be on the other side and <laughs> growing this thing. And I'm, I'm grateful for the stage.
2: Thanks for listening, everyone. Reach out to me at positano.d at pg.com if you have any questions or feedback. In the meantime, contemplate this quote by Steve Jobs as you digest the insights for my conversation with Tristan. You have to be burning with an idea or a problem or a wrong that you want to right. If you're not passionate enough from the start, you'll never stick it out. Until next time, stay curious. Uh, You'd better check. To that town
1: with and that's our show like what you heard please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform for show notes about this episode links to things mentioned or requests for sponsorship visit pgalums.com slash podcast follow us on twitter at pgalumpod We'd love to hear from you. Learnings from Leaders is a production of the p Alumni Network, a global nonprofit founded by former p committed to community, enrichment, and philanthropy. With more than 45,000 registered members worldwide, the network connects alums through global conferences, local chapters, industry events, and online content. Our nonprofit foundation supports economic empowerment communities around the world. To find out more, visit pgalums.com. Now here's a preview of next week's episode. Corporate America, in my experience, has always reverted to the least controversial measures that seem to promote equality. People need to be treated equitably, giving them what they need to succeed, recognizing that each person has different needs and different deficiencies in terms of their ability to move forward. So as soon as we normalize and equalize, what you're saying is, well, clearly, this African-American person who came from poverty had the same opportunity, experience, vision, exposure as this person coming from five generations of wealthy college graduates. Of course, they're the same. Well, guess what? They're not. That's it for this week. I've been Roman Segel. And I'm still Andrew Tarbin. Thanks for joining Learnings from Leaders, the p alumni podcast. We'll see you next time.